Please do turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 4, and our text is found in the final verse of chapter 4. My title, as you turn to the text, is Two Worldviews Emerge. That subject of worldview needs a little explanation. The word is straightforward, but it literally means how do we view the world that we live in? As we look out to the world today, how do you view it? Do you just look at the things that you can see, or do you look beyond? Do you look and read a pattern? Do you see a history which God has revealed in the Bible and which gives no surprises to us? Or do you just live by your feelings and by what you want and by what you see in front of you now? Two worldviews emerge. That's what I want to look at. I think it's very plain in this chapter. It's so obvious. We're going to look at one godless line, the line of Cain. We're going to look at Seth, the godly line. This is so rich. This helps us to explain the whole of history Two worldviews. Which one do you believe in this morning? Which one is true of your life and the way you look at the world? Is it these spectacles that you're looking through this morning? The word of God's lens? Or do you just look with your own weak eyes? The eyes that Cain looked through seeing what he wanted, doing what he felt like, which of course led tragically to murder. Let's go back to verse 8. Let's read what it says. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. What a sad, tragic crossroads that humanity has reached immediately after. God has made the world and this family has gone from two to four. Cain has committed that sin. I'm not sure it is, but we always view it as the worst sin. Murder, murder. The end of a precious life which God has given, God has made. And Abel, his blood now speaks from the earth. It's a figure of speech. Abel's blood shouts out, What have you done, Cain? What have you done to me? You've taken my life. You've ended my life. Your own brother. You've taken his blood in revenge and hatred and jealousy. It's what Cain has done. And the Lord comes and speaks to him. Do you know every sin, 
every sin that you and I have done, God speaks. Conscience speaks. The word of God speaks. God comes near and he tells us and he shows us just what we've done. You see, this is the great delusion of humanity. We think we can do and speak and be other than God has planned and we'll get away with it. And Cain is no different. The Lord comes to Cain. And he says, what have you done? What have you done? The blood of your brother speaks. What have you done? Verse 10. The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. Do you know that's one of the great myths, isn't it? We steal. I can get away with it. We lie. No one will know. We get angry and lose our temper. Nobody else heard. And the Lord comes with a voice. It's not really Cain's brother's voice. It's the voice of God speaking directly, penetrating right to the heart and the mind. That's what we call conviction. God speaks, we hear, we can either ignore it, we can make our hearts hardened, calloused, like Pharaoh did, or we can listen. Cain chooses the way of Pharaoh. He won't listen. Look at what he says in verse 9. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. But you are. You've taken his life. You've just ended the first life to be ended and you're trying to run away. You're saying, I'll hand over. Just like Pilate did. Wash the hands. I'm not responsible. But you are Cain. There's no doubt about it. Cain probably in his mind rationalized it something like this. He was accepted. I wasn't. He was favored. I wasn't. I'm just evening things up. I'm rebalancing the books. I'm putting things right. But no Cain. Murder? Sin? It's never justified. We can never do it and say it's right. Look at what he does. His reply is dishonest. Where is your brother? What have you done? I don't know. Of course he knew where he was. He knew where the body, the skeleton, the blood lay, and he was evasive. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are, because you're responsible. His answer was designed to deceive. Denial, evasion, deceit, it's the same old thing, isn't it? Adam and Eve, 
the next generation. They're using the same method, the same technique. Parents, do your children ever do this? You confront them. What have you done? I don't know. Where is it? I'm not sure. Parents, do you ever do this? Do you ever pretend to each other that you didn't do what you know you did? What about grandparents? Is it true of you? What have you done? You hear the voice of God speaking through these ancient words. What have you done? Oh, we could stay with that this morning. What have you done with your life? What have you done with his life? What have you done with your responsibilities, your talents, your gifts? Or oh, it will never do. Cain seeks to divorce his responsibility and accountability from his actions. That's what we do. We do something, we say something, we write something. It wasn't me. Or, well, I, was, I wasn't feeling well that day. I'm not really responsible. But we are. We know we are. We're accountable, responsible. We can't lie about it. We can't hide. We can't divorce the impact that we've had from the responsibility. We do something. We leave a loved one and we say, but he sinned. So I was justified. No. We have responsibilities. We have to stay at our post. If we've committed to something, we can't leave. Cain, what have you done? Why are you leaving your responsibilities to your brother? Why are you leaving your responsibilities to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your job, to your church? What have you done? You've left. You've absconded. You've divorced. Accountability, responsibility, which we all have from our actions and our words. That will never work. The Lord knows. Your conscience knows. Sin will find you out, be sure. And the truth will catch up with you. Other people see. Adam and Eve. Where's Abel? Where is he? I've not heard his voice. Where is he? The truth was out. Do you know, just as an aside, it's very interesting how many questions... The Lord asks in Genesis 3 and 4. They are such searching questions. Let me take the names out and just mention them to you. To Adam, where are you? What a good question. Where are you in your life today? Are you running from God like Jonah did? Where are you? Adam, who told you you were naked? Who told you 
that before God you were undone and exposed. Eve, what have you done? Same question to her. Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face dropped? I'm looking at you. I can see your countenance is fallen. God comes with questions. Do you know it should be us asking questions of God, but God has to come and ask questions of us because we've gone away. We've deviated. We've left where we should be. We've not walked in communion with God. Cain, here's this question. Cain, if you'd worship me correctly and rightly, if you'd come in the right way, wouldn't your worship have been acceptable? Where's your brother? What have you done? Seven questions. Genesis 3, 4. Heaven speaking. And you know God still asks those same questions because they're timeless questions, aren't they? Where are you? What have you done? What are you doing with your life? Why haven't you worshipped me? Why haven't you prayed to me? Why haven't you come the right way? Why haven't you dealt with your sin and avoided it and run away? Pretended that you could come with your own good works. It will never do, Cain. And especially now that you've murdered. The opportunity was there for forgiveness, for atonement, for cleansing, for washing. Cain, you refused it. Now you've murdered your son. Let's look, first of all, briefly. The spirit of Cain. The spirit of Cain. This is one of the ways that people view the world. In Cain, we have a prototype. And you know there's many here this morning that think like Cain. Because if you don't think like Seth, you think like Cain. Well, let's look at Cain. If only he had acknowledged his sin. Have you acknowledged your sin? Cain didn't. If only you had felt your need of forgiveness. Cain didn't. If only he had gone the right way, the prescribed way, with atonement, with an animal, with the shedding of blood, he would have been forgiven. Then his sin wouldn't lie at the door, as it says, because he hadn't come the right way, his sin still lies at the door. That's the words used in verse 7. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, forgiven, cleansed? If thou doest not well, if you come your own way, if you try and do it by good works, rosary beads, falling down in front of a statue. You've tried to come your own way. Cain, if you come my way, through the shedding of blood, you'll be accepted. 
because you've put your faith in a given saviour, a sacrifice, in the life of a perfect, not animal, but a perfect life, the life of Jesus Christ. But Cain didn't. The spirit of Cain says, I'm good enough. I'll do it my way. Do you think Cain felt his punishment was fair? Let's look at his punishment. Verse 14, he says, You've driven me out from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. He would be a wanderer, a fugitive, a vagabond, somebody that was never settled. Here's the spirit of Cain, a person that wanders, ever searching, never finding, looking, looking, looking. Where is that that does my soul good, that satisfies the soul? Cain doesn't find it. He's a nomad. He travels, wanders, looking. He can't find what he needs to find. He's a traveler. Don't mean to use that word in a horrible way, but that's literally what it says in verse 14. An unsettled traveler, always moving. The next thing, the next thing. Sometimes I meet people and they've changed their jobs in three weeks and then again and then again. And they've changed their partner and their friends. Oh, I'm going to do this. It's going to be great. And then the next minute they do the opposite. They keep looking, keep searching, keep thinking they've found. They're just like Cain. The spirit of Cain, ever searching, never finding. Cain, is your punishment fair? Sent out from the presence of God. Well, that is because he was a sinner. Is it fair that he should be pushed out and become a wanderer? What do you think? Should he be punished in this way? I think it's absolutely fair. He should have lost his own life immediately. If it was not for the grace of God, he wouldn't have had a life of opportunity to think, to consider. And yet he complains that when he takes his brother's life, it's not fair that he should keep his own life. I think that's deeply unfair. Because if it was me, I should have been punished for my sin immediately. He'd got his lens all wrong. Of course, it was fair. Let's look at Cain. He goes out, verse 16. He's banished from God's presence. Nobody can be in the presence of God until they've been washed and cleansed. Do you know that's why no unbeliever can truly worship? And can truly pray because prayer and worship is coming into the presence of God. And to do that you need to be holy. And you and I are not holy. We need to be forgiven and made holy. Here's Cain. He gets married. 
to one of his sisters. There was no one else for him to marry. The genetic pool was sufficiently wide at the time where it was possible for a few generations. Cain comes together. They bear a son. And this is so significant. He builded a city. He built a city. Now, don't think of cities in the way that we think of a city. This city was probably a fort, a walled area with a number of dwellings. They didn't need a big city. But why did he build a city? He wanted to make a statement. Man and materials, that's what I believe in. Cain says, I don't need God. I will protect me and my family with a wall, with a city. Probably a fort. He had grand plans. I don't think he will have finished the city. But he makes it, puts up defenses, and says, all those sinful people out there, that could come and take revenge upon me, I will provide the answer for myself. And you know, that's the spirit of Cain. That's what we do. DIY religion. I'll do it without God. I'll put up the walls around my own life. I don't need God's help. I don't need prayer. I don't need worship. I don't need to be humbled. I don't need to leave my sin. I don't need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I'm going to build a city. Just watch me. Look what I can do. Look what I can make. I believe in my own power. I believe without God, I'll be fine. I saw an advert this week. It was for cosmetics. I don't really understand how this works, but the tagline was this. Believe in yourself and all will be well. I don't really understand how that works with makeup and hand cream and all the other stuff. Believe in yourself and all will be well. That's the spirit of Cain. Believe in yourself and a city and power he wanted to make a powerful, protected human community. And that's what we do today. Run to the city. Safety in numbers. Cities are godless places. The city of London today is a godless place. Most cities sadly are. You don't find much of God there. He wanted to make a rival to the community which God had prescribed, the community of the church. It's there in embryonic form, worship, sacrifice. Well, that's the spirit of Cain. Secondly, let's turn down and look at Seth. This is a glorious verse. Verse 25 Adam knew his wife. He's had Cain and Abel with Eve. And she bears a son and called his name Seth. The total opposite 
of the punishment that Cain is given. Seth's name means settled, grounded, with firm foundations and a substitute. It means all of those things. Adam's wife has Seth. For, God said, he's been appointed. Appointed. A replacement for Abel. A settled substitute for Abel. This is glorious. You don't need to turn to it. Luke 3, 38. It plots the whole of the history of Christ all the way back to Seth and to Adam. This is the seed royal. When it says, God has appointed another seed. This is speaking of Christ. The appointed one, the settled one. Seth, the godly line. Here are these two lines running in parallel. Cain, I don't need God. Seth, from Seth will come Christ, the appointed one. Appointed, anointed, set, settled, grounded. Cain, the wanderer, the one always searching. Do you see the way? God is fulfilling Genesis 3.15 already. An appointed one. Cain should have been the first, the heir. Abel has died. And now Seth comes and appears above. He is the seed royal, the heir appointed. He's the one that's been chosen. And God has raised him up. The godly line of Seth. Verse 26. And to Seth there was born a son and called his name Enos. And the line continues. Well, my time is short. Our third heading. We've looked at the godless line of Cain, the spirit of Cain, the godly line of Seth. And here we see, in the final part of verse 26, the embryonic church. We've already had sacrifice instead of good works. We've had an altar, no doubt, made. And now the church really takes shape in this verse. 200 years plus have lapsed between the birth of Cain and Abel and the birth of Enos, 235 years, spanning that chapter. We read these wonderful words. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What does this mean? There's two meanings. They're both good, both legitimate. The plain understanding is that Some men and women felt the need of God. They felt they needed the reality, the presence of God, only to be found in prayer and worship. Some men said, no, I don't need God. I don't need prayer. I don't need worship. 
But some men said, we must pray to God. That's what we need. Already the world had become godless, murderous. Let's look back to some of the verses that we skipped over. We see the beginning of nomadic dwelling in verse 20. We see the beginning of arts and music in verse 21. This is the other way to live. It's not that having a nomadic life is wrong, but be careful. It's not that music is wrong, but be careful, because it will be breathed into a godless culture, and the culture will be breathed into the music. Verse 22, metalwork, the making of idols, substitutes for God out of brass and iron. Do you see the other way? Music, art, metalwork, the work of man's hands, Verse 23, polygamy, two wives. And then in the same verse, the second murder. Not one murder, another one. And Lamech, who's taken two wives, now commits the second murder. What tragedy. The world is already getting filled with sin and murder and godlessness and idolatry, no doubt. And in that context, we read, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So the first meaning is, there was revival. Men and women felt the need of God. We can't carry on like this. You see where this is going to end up? Mass murder, war, idolatry, broken homes, broken marriages, addiction. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We need to turn back to God. God is the only hope. We must pray to him. We must worship him. We must seek God's way. And we've gone astray. That's the first meaning. But there is another meaning. It's very legitimate. If you look at the Hebrew, you can understand it this way. Then began men to be called by the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, we have the word Christian. They were first called Christians at Antioch. But here, we have some who are willing to be called the set-apart ones, the ones who are not like them, the ones who don't worship with idols, the ones who don't worship with icons, the ones who don't worship with the work of man's hands, the ones who say, Worship won't be about men and women. It will be about God, his character, his beauty, his holiness. It will be about prayer and sacrifice. It will be about godly living and confession of sin. It will be about the proclamation of the gospel. 
because that's the only hope for the world. And these people, Seth and Enos and Seth's wife and no doubt Adam and Eve, they gather together and they say, we are the called apart ones. We are the people of God. We are called by his name and we're not ashamed of it. We're on the Lord's side. We will serve the king. And we will seek to bring other lives to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you know either explanation? They're good, they're valid, and the Hebrew seems to mean both. And they're true, aren't they? The first revival. A revival is needed after a few hundred years because already the spirit of Cain is beginning to dominate the people who are city dwellers, the people who say, I don't need God, and there, Seth, the appointed one, the settled one, the grounded one, who says, I will confess my sin to God regularly in worship. I will renew the covenant that God wants me to keep and I will rely upon the shedding of blood and upon a life that hasn't yet been lived. The Christ that is to come. Seth would have known of the promise given to Adam and Eve and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we do this morning. Why have you come to worship? Is it ritual? Is it habit? Trying to make yourself feel a bit better? Are you feeling a bit of guilt because of the way you've lived in the last week? Or do you come before God every hour of every day and call upon his name? And are you a one that says, I'm for God. This is my God. And I'm not ashamed to own his name because his name is the power of God unto salvation. May we often come, call upon the name of the Lord, turn from sin, ask for cleansing, believe in one who now is come, even Christ, the line of Seth, through whom Christ would, would be born. You read Luke 3, 38, and you see that Seth was the seed royal, the one who came. Two worldviews. What do you believe in? Do you believe in me? Man, material, what I see, what I feel, what I want? Believe in yourself. Or do you believe and call upon the name of the Lord? And are you identified by him in the family of God's people, covenanted with other believers, saying, I call upon the name of the Lord, and I'm known by his name. I belong to this church. This is my people, and I'm for God.
May the Lord bless us this morning.